Good morning and welcome. We have a long message in store for us this morning with uh, Pastor Jacob bringing a second round. It was awesome last week. It's really hard when you have good words to uh, cut yourself off. So we have that going on. So I wanted to just let you know, kind of just to set the stage as we start, um, offering buckets here, the connect cards in the back. Um, those things will be open throughout service. We are not going to have like our normal break in between second and third song because um, we're just going to be moving and grooving. So I just want to let you know, would you stand with me this morning? Father, we love you. We come before you and um, we sing praises and thanksgiving to you this morning, God. You are so faithful and good and we are here to worship you, God. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, God. You are so good. We
And we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are worthy of a thousand hallelujahs forever. And so we, we rest in you, God. And we thank you for your presence with us. Always, God. We just rest in you, Jesus.
I personally am thankful for the charismatic movement, the movement that recognized that God works in the gifts that he gives his people, and I'm thankful for that. But there was one thing where I I felt like they dropped the ball a little bit. It's what do you do in the hard times? Because in Back in the 70s, people believed that if you did everything right, then nothing bad would happen. And this, and so a lot of good people would avoid singing a song like this because this says, this says, what do I do in the hard times? And Pastor Jacob's message answers that today. This is actually based on, y'all be seated. This is based on an old hymn by, by a guy named Horatio Spafford. And he was, uh, his family was traveling to the New World, the, the United States from England, and his whole family was lost at sea in a shipwreck. Uh, the whole, the, the Horatio's wife and daughters, all but one, were lost. And um, weeks later, he's traveling across the Atlantic, and they get to the same spot, and the captain says, this is where. And he gets up, and God gives him this song. And it says, when peace like a river attends my way. That doesn't sound like too, too bad, does it? But he couples that, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. And you can, I don't know if you've ever been out in the, in the middle of the ocean, but it, it's pretty wild. When sorrows come at you like that wave after wave after wave. In those difficult times, I can still say it is well with my soul because I'm trusting God. And so Pastor Jacob's message deals with that exact same thing today. And we'll hear from him in just a moment. I'm so thankful for our worship team. Um, I want to remind you that the food pantry is this Saturday from around 9 to 12. And if if you'd like to be involved with that, there are some spaces open this Saturday, especially if you'd like to help with that, this Saturday, 9 to 12. Um, Unity in the Community is the last Saturday. No, it's July this. No, it's August, August the 19th. 19th. August the 19th. Sorry, Tina. Um, the August the 19th is Unity in the Community. And this is a multi-church gathering of the church. Uh, several different congregations get together on that Saturday. And we just have a big bash kind of getting back to school. There's water slides and it's just, it's it's a lot of fun and an opportunity for us as a community to recognize that we are all one, one church, one, one uh, family of believers and just community. So uh, that's August the 19th, but t-shirts have to be turned in. Your order for a t-shirt has to be turned in by July 16th. It's a really cool camo t-shirt and you can find it on the bulletin board by the stairs. Um, July, the last Sunday in July is a fifth Sunday, and we're having a family day, so we'll have dinner on the grounds. We'll have some games and stuff going on outside. It's going to be really fun. Put that on your calendar right now. I would like to ask you one more thing, and that's to pray for Kids Camp this week. We have a handful of kids that are going to um, to Durant, to uh, Lake Texoma, uh, to our church's Victory Life's camp there, and just pray for them because they're going to have an opportunity for God to work in a special way in their life. And I don't know about you, but I've, um, I had a lot of early in my, early in my Christian life, a camp experience is what made a lot of difference to me. I would probably wouldn't be standing right here if it weren't for that. 
If you've never filled out a Connect card, I'd ask you if you do that. There's there's packets under the in the little rack under a seat in front of you, and this blue card. If you'll fill that out, you'll get all you'll get weekly a reminder of kind of the important information of what's going on. I want you to take about three minutes and come back for an awesome word from Pastor Jacob. In the interest of full disclosure and transparency, I would like to say that uh, Pastor Jacob and I talked the week before last about um, the series that we were going to do, and he asked me if we would do this series, which started on Mother's Day, and they, they preached it at Sherman. It was only for the Sherman location, but he and I discussed it, and then when I watched the videos of it, it it's awesome, and I believe that it's a word for us for right now. So, normally what we watch is a live thing, but this was pre-recorded and was shown. So this is the was on the 21st of May. Last week, we listened to the one that was preached on the 14th Mother's Day, and this is the 21st, and then next week will be the one that was on the 28th. So I just like to tell people ahead of time, I don't want to be misleading and think that it's a live one, but I do believe it's a word for us for right now. Uh, Pastor Jacob talks about what to do in the hard times, trust in God. Take it away. What a beautiful story. I want to maybe close out a number of things that I've opened up in the last couple weeks uh, and talk about suffering today and maybe, maybe close a few loops, most likely open a number of other ones. And um, potentially not answer many of our questions. <laughs> uh, mostly because that it's 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 we should be very cautious if all we do all we try to use scripture for is to just get our questions answered rather than allow the scriptures to ask its own questions and us meet the scriptures on its own terms. And namely, we are disciples of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. I don't know why you signed up for this. Um, We have many reasons why we said yes to Jesus. Um, Most of them, hopefully good. There's a few of us that potentially said yes to Jesus because you were just scared (laughs) or you were manipulated and at some point in time you came to some kind of knowledge of Jesus where you said, yeah, I'm in on this. Um, There's all sorts of reasons why you've stayed in this. And uh, many people in the church have different motives, uh, different reasons why they, they still claim faith in Jesus. But hopefully who we are and the kind of culture we cultivate and create uh, is one where we've chosen to be disciples of Jesus, that we're choosing to live our lives in such a way that Jesus is our guide, our leader, our master. And in following him, he shapes us and transforms us. He guides us. And to do that, though, requires us to be committed and to remain committed to seeing the world as Jesus saw the world, to allow him 
to shape how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see um, what's going on in the world, uh, and allow him to shape the questions we ask. And many times, yeah, some of our questions that we have do get answered, and there are many answers in Scripture. But there's also many questions that get provoked that don't have easy answers, And many times we ask questions that we want an easy answer, but if you got an easy answer, it would be a cheap answer, a a cliche. And that's not enough for most of us. And in talking about suffering and the challenge of it, I know that many, we're all in different places and we're all going through different seasons and some some of your suffering is, is, is you're in the dark night of it, it's an extreme form and many of Many of us, our suffering is fairly light. You know, it's not awesome, but, uh, but we're not, you know, we're not in the thick of it at the moment. And so uh, in talking about this, I want to address it at least in the way that, that Jesus talks about this and see the world and see life through his lens. And if that answers questions, fantastic. But um, you do not need... And you think you might want this, but you don't need, and I'm not going to give it to you, a philosophical answer to the problem of evil in the world and the problem of suffering in the world. You don't, you don't need that. You might think you want that, but, but suffering and God's purposes in the world are far more complicated than we would like to admit. We'd like it to just be easy, and it's just not And so uh, it's important that in the midst of having difficult and challenging questions or in the midst of being in a season of suffering that we're seeing things through the lens of Jesus. And here, Jesus, this is just gold. Now, Luke is a wonderful storyteller. A couple weeks ago, we we, we read through the story of Jesus taking a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, working through their disappointment with them. And not being visible to them. Being hidden from their sight. And they go through the scriptures. Their hearts burn. And then he breaks the bread and their eyes are open. And this story that was in our reading today immediately follows that story. Where Jesus now appears to all of the disciples. And he says some very important things. Very short statements that are very critical in how we understand Jesus and the scriptures, the scriptures that Jesus had. Um, Jesus, I want to see scripture the way Jesus sees scripture. He's the living word, and so therefore, he gives us the right way of looking at scripture and what that means for us. And he says towards the end of this story, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you about all the things written about me. And then he gives, it's, it's, it's like a shorthand way of talking about what we would call our Old Testament. What, uh, what he and uh, the disciples would call the Hebrew Bible. It's all the same books, they're just organized slightly differently. And this is a short way of talking about the Old Testament as a whole. All the things written about me in the Law of Moses, that's the first five books, and the prophets, and that's a lot of books. Uh, It's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. 
Those are the former prophets. And then the latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets. So that's how they were put together. And the Psalms, and the Psalms was the first book in the last section of the Hebrew Bible called the Writings. And so this is way, his, his way of saying all of this that is three quarters of our Bible, he says it's written about me. It's about Jesus is what he's saying about himself. All the things written about me that it must be fulfilled. And then he says what this whole thing is all about. Verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's Jesus' summary of our Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. You're not going to find if you take that quote and you take it and then put it in a search engine and says, where's this located in the Old Testament? You're not going to find that exact quote because it's the whole thing, which is like 700 pages. It's his summary. His summary is that the Christ should suffer, crucified, died, he should suffer, he rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations. Now, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, if you've read it all the way through. I didn't see that. Did you? Because, I mean, I've read this a number of times, and... I didn't see that, which means I probably don't see things exactly like Jesus sees them. I'm not reading things exactly like Jesus is reading them. And I'm the one in the wrong. I mean, it's possible he got it wrong, but it's not likely, okay? What's more, far more probable is that I'm getting it wrong, correct? And just to simplify this, uh, as, as easy as possible. This is not original. Uh, I, I do learn from very intelligent and wise scholars. Um, just to make it as simple as possible, it looks like this. This is basically what he says. How you're to read the Hebrew Bible is that the Christ, the Messiah, the uh, God's chosen anointed one, goes into suffering and death... And what emerges from suffering and death is resurrection, forgiveness, and gospel, or good news, preached to the nations. That's what he says this is all about. And again, I didn't see that. And I'm still working through seeing that. But this is, this is what he says. If you're going to read the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, this is what this is about. And it's going to lead to him. It's all written about him. Um, and so to, to see this though, like at the centerpiece of this is suffering and death. And this is what Jesus sees this whole thing's all about. So the most natural place um, that you would look in your Old Testament would be in the story of Job, the book of Job. Now it just so happened that in my readings, yesterday began the book of Job. 
if you do a one-year Bible reading plan, good for you. <laughs> it's a, that's a lot to take on. But if you do that, they're, they're structured different. The one that I'm reading uh, is structured in such a way that yesterday began the book of Job. And so I found, oh, it's just like the Spirit, aligning all these things together. Job is often the place we would go to to try to figure out an answer to the question, you know, why the problem of evil or why is there suffering? And uh, as fun and enjoyable as it would be to talk through the literary design of Job and do an in-depth study, that's not really our purpose today. Um, I've done it in other places and times, and it's very beautiful, but here's the deal. It's not going to answer the questions you want it to. It just doesn't. Um, but if we're looking at things through the way Jesus says we're to look at things, through the lens that he gives us, Job fits it perfectly. That Job is called righteous and blameless, or blameless and upright. And he suffers unjustly. He has unjust suffering and experiences a near-death experience. And the, the design of the book, there's the, very, the simplest way of knowing the design of the book is chapters 1 and 2 is the prologue, like an introduction, and then chapters 3 all the way to 38. Well, if you include God's dialogue, 41, um, is dialogue, and then chapter 42 is the epilogue. So, prologue, dialogue, epilogue, okay? And uh, it's dense Hebrew poetry, okay? And uh, he, 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 part of this is a long outcry and lament from Job. Um, chapter three is a long poem where Job curses the day he was born. Like that's, so it's, it's, it's difficult to navigate, Okay. But on the other side comes restoration and um, walking in blessing and favor and honor. But also, what I'll show you is blessing or forgiveness for the nations. Okay, so if you go to the very beginning of Job, um, just reading a couple verses, again, just thinking through this lens of suffering. Verse 1 of Job, the very introduction of the book, there was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Other translations will say righteous and blameless. One who feared God and turned away from evil. It's, it's very important, you see, repeatedly, that Job is blameless and upright. He is in the right and all suffering that comes from that comes to him is unjust. Okay, um, if you go to verse eight, there's some confusing things in here, and, and today is not the day to explain this whole courtroom scene. But you do see a figure that comes, and in uh, many English translations. Uh, the figure that is introduced into the scene is with the capital S, Satan. However, in Hebrew, it is not a name. It's a title. 
with the definite article the or ha-satan, the Satan, the accuser. Um, one translation, uh, one scholar I follow is, is translating, uh, he says, my, my favorite way to translate it right now is the hostile one. The one that is always against the anti figure. He's just against. Okay, so you, now's not the time to explain how this all works. But look at, the, look at the dialogue here that happens between the Lord and the Satan, the accuser, the hostile one. And the Lord said to the hostile one, have you considered my servant Job? My servant Job. That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then the hostile one answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And what's, what's the Lord's response? No, you're not going to trick me. No. The Lord said to the hostile one, Behold, All that he has in your hand. All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So the hostile one went out from the presence of the Lord. I'm I'm assuming that causes all sorts of questions. That are not answered in this story. And I also imagine that that makes you a bit uncomfortable. Right? How can this be? And again, the story doesn't answer those questions. Is that because they don't matter? I don't know. Part of it is the scriptures do not give up all of its secrets in your first reading or your first hundred readings. Or your first thousand readings. Part of it is you have to stick with the story over and over and over and over. And also part of it is Job is not the first book of the Bible. It comes after a lot of backstory. What's important, at least is that repeatedly it is said Job is blameless and upright or righteous and blameless. I do not think this is a story that is a generalized philosophical thought experiment on why bad things happen to good people. To, to, to ask that question would be to impose on the story what is not revealed. This is a unique situation where Job, and I'll, I'll show you this, there's only three characters in scripture that uses this description. Job's one of them. He's the third of three. This is a unique situation where we're looking into a figure, a person 
who is facing, who's going to face immense suffering that is unjust. And right after this, in a cycle of four, Job loses all of his possessions. It says a servant comes, all of your herds were killed, and then while he was still speaking, another one came up, and all your camels were, were, were stolen or killed. And while he was still speaking, a third came up, and all of your donkeys and sheep and all that have been killed. And while he was still speaking, a fourth came and said that a wind came and blew down your children's house, and they're all dead. And I alone have escaped. And what does Job do? He says he tears his clothes, he falls on the ground, and he worships. And then chapter two, the scene goes back to a heavenly courtroom. And the Lord said to the hostile one, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil, he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And, and that, there's, there's, a, there's a word, what we would in English put in an adjective, uh, without just reason. Without a reason that would make sense. Okay, so someone's suffering. On, this, on a side note, somewhat humorous, I've just asked the Lord, don't bring my name up in a heavenly courtroom, okay? <laughs> I'm fine being anonymous, <laughs> okay? Um, okay, so you have a servant, a servant of the Lord who is righteous and blameless and it suffers unjustly. Um, and what you have is a suffering servant who experiences this unjust suffering and holds fast his integrity. Okay, so remember, remember what Jesus says this whole thing's about. That a chosen, a chosen anointed representative suffering and from it emerges Blessing and forgiveness and restoration. Okay, um, I, I'm not a I'm not a music expert. Okay, um, I, I I dabble at best. I've already explained my you know '90s childhood playlist. We won't go back there. <laughs> uh, but. Um, just expert musicians in genres like jazz have a way of presenting a melody to you and then through the rest of their works just kind of sprinkling in this melody. Um, one of probably the most famous symphony is Beethoven's Fifth. And uh, those opening four notes, the dun-dun-dun-dun, is probably the most famous sounds in classical music. And uh, in, in honor of this yesterday, I was listening to the whole Fifth Symphony. Um, and like I said, I am not a music expert. This is like 35 minutes worth of a symphony and I'm just like, these guys are really good. <laughs> <laughs> but what Beethoven did 
is he would weave those four notes and some of the subsequent melody. He would weave it throughout the symphony to the point where what begins, uh, he described those first four notes as fate knocking at the door. It's very ominous. And, by the, and it's in C minor. And by the end of the symphony, it's in C major. And so it turns, you could say, from dark to light. And uh, he weaves in this melody throughout the whole thing. And I will readily admit, I couldn't trace it all that often. Okay? So just don't, don't give me credit where credit is not due. Okay? But if you, if, if you are an expert at music you will be able to find how he weaved that, those notes and that melody throughout. You're listening for that melody as he's going off. And jazz is the same way. I will admit, I'm not a jazz fan, okay? But jazz will do this. He'll have this melody and then like go on for on and on and on and, and trace that melody through. Okay, so the melody of the Hebrew Bible is what Jesus said, that there's an anointed one, a chosen one who goes into suffering and death and emerges, there's restoration and forgiveness for the nations. Okay? So, let's just run the melody through a couple scenarios and stories. Beginning at the very beginning, because that's always the wisest place to begin, as you go to the beginning, um, it begins with creation in Genesis 1. So if you take Genesis 1 all the way to about chapter 9, you have God creating a beautiful and good world. And in this world, he appoints at the pinnacle of his creation, he appoints image-bearing creatures Creatures whom he blesses and he commissions to be his royal representatives in the world. The way in which he will bring his his justice and goodness and love and compassion and mercy into the world is through these chosen image bearers. But introduced into the story is a talking snake. This is where your scriptures, yeah, you don't... You don't always get the answers that you want, okay? And you get a lot of stuff that'll confuse you. And by page three, you have a talking snake. That could, that's at the top of the list, you know? Things that can really confuse you. But he's introduced as a created being who's in rebellion and hostility. And trying to lure and tempt the image bearers into rebellion. Through deceit, God's holding out on you. The way in which to experience goodness is to control the definition of good and evil for yourselves. And humans give into it. And what ensues from this folly is violence. The very next story is brothers who are at odds and the older brother murders his younger brother and pollutes the ground with his blood to where God shows up and says, The blood of your brother is crying out to me. Innocent suffering is crying out to me. And you follow Cain seven generations. In the seventh generation, you have a man who builds a city that's built on violence. And it's using women as property and all sorts of violence ensues and it gets bad. It gets really, really bad to where all this innocent blood is crying out to the Lord, and the Lord regrets having made humans. And so what he does 
when all of this violence is he chooses a representative who is righteous and blameless. And God says, I'm going to wash the planet clean, but I will preserve a remnant through this chosen representative and his family. And so he builds an ark and it's like a box. You look at the measurements, it's like, is that a boat or a box? I don't know, but it floated along enough to save humans and, and all the animals. Okay, and so God, and if you follow the story, it goes in reverse order of Genesis 1. So it's, it's, it's the undoing of creation. And Noah is innocent. But he has to go through this undoing, this decreation, this undoing of creation. And then when the boat box finds its way to a mountain and he finally gets out, what is the first thing he does? He offers a sacrifice. And it says, when the Lord smelt the fragrant offering, he blessed them. When the innocent goes through suffering and then intercedes, it unlocks blessing for the rest. Recreation then ensues from the righteous intercessor who stands on behalf of the world and now unleashes new blessing in life. But Noah has this problem. He's a human. And what we know about humans so far in the story is that they're terrible. And though he righteous and blameless, the very next story after God's covenant he makes with all of creation, you have him in another garden, naked and ashamed. Something shady happens with one of his sons. Most likely something, uh, it's something sexual and it's probably most likely something with Noah's wife. And uh, a son comes from that and then receives curse and you follow Canaan down through the generations and you get one of his descendants, Nimrod, which is like, it's a, it literally means something to the effect of fool. Um, and he builds a city that's full of violence and rebellion and arrogance and built up to be in the place of the gods. And so God scatters these rebellious humans and out of the scattering, he selects someone to represent him, to be his people. And he calls Abraham, at that time Abram, calls out of the scattering and calls him to a promised land and, command, and speaks a blessing over him. Says he will be a carrier of blessing. And so they wander through this wilderness. And then when they get to where they're supposed to be, this promised land, what do they do? He goes up on a mountain and he offers a sacrifice. He intercedes. And thus becomes a carrier of the blessing. Do you see it? Do you hear the melody? Do you hear the da-da-da-da? Do you hear the melody? It's there. Over and over and over and over. But 
every single one of these stories, it imme- like after these blessings, it immediately is followed by something stupid that they do. Because they're humans. And that's what we're really good at. And so there, you, you begin to try to look. And, and again, this then you just put this on repeat. Over and over and over and over. And you follow all the stories. You follow Samuel and David and Ruth. And all the different stories is following this same melody. And it's almost like what God is looking for is someone that can take on the suffering of the world and not give in to that snake and maintain their integrity in the midst of great suffering so that in going through the suffering, they can be a carrier of God's blessing. And it's over and over and over and over and over. You get to Isaiah And there's this figure that's being prophesied that ends up being called the suffering servant. And you're looking over and over and over and over and you don't find one. You see these small moments where some people get it sort of right. But you wonder, is a servant going to emerge that can go through the suffering of the world And maintain their integrity. And so be a carrier of God's blessing. And you get to Job. And by this time, you will have been, you're supposed to, and I will admit, I'm not there yet. The hope is that you're so used to the music, you know how to spot the melody immediately. And so you get to Job, which is like, two-thirds, almost three-fourths of the way through the Hebrew Bible. And you hear, there was this man. And he was blameless and upright. And again, the only two other people that have been called blameless and upright was Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, and now Job. And so you're like, okay, what's going to happen? How's he going to do? And God himself even says he has maintained his integrity. But if you follow the story, you see that this is a wild roller coaster where Job is confused, his friends show up, and and initially, if you look at the end of chapter 2, it says his friends showed up to bring comfort and sort of share in the suffering. It says when they saw him a long way off, they, 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 fell, they, like they fell out in sorrow, they wept, and that said they laid in the ground for seven days, not saying a word because of the suffering of their friend. So they came as comforters. But what they try to do is they try to explain the suffering away. And again, this is if you uh, this is for another whole nother sermon. Going through the logic and then what that logic is built on, and then seeing where that logic is flawed. 
But they were convinced Job had to have done something wrong. Because otherwise, this bad thing would not have happened. But remember, at the beginning of the story, the volume is cranked to 10. He is righteous and blameless. He's done nothing wrong. So you, the reader, are already tuned into something else is going on. What's going on is suffering. It's, it's this evidence of being in a broken world outside of Eden. And you get through his lament, his outcry. And he begins by the time, eventually he just stops talking to his friends. His friends are trying to explain it and he's like, shut up. Actually, the, um, the, the, the phrase, what miserable comforters you are. Like that comes from Job, miserable comforters. And finally, he just stops talking to him. And his last, his last monologue from chapters 29 to 31 is where Job's outcry and lament gets more and more narrow and focused to the point where by the time you get to chapter 31, he just wants to see God. He just wants to take up his case before God. That if he's in the wrong, let God say, because you guys are idiots, you don't know what you're talking about. They're like, they start making up possible hypothetic sins that he must have committed to deserve such suffering. Side note, if that's the way you comfort, that kind of comfort is more about comforting yourself than the sufferer, because if you can explain away their suffering, you can keep it away from you. And you just have to know, we're in a broken world where you are not in control. And you're not going to find answers to everything. And so finally he just says, I just want to see God. I just want to take this up before God himself. And then God shows up. And he shows up in a whirlwind. Chapter 38, verse 1 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, you know nothing. And you say, that is not very kind and compassionate of the Lord. Here's the deal. This is why it belongs in the wisdom literature. God is so wise and his creation so meticulous that even though rebellion, sin, violence, folly, disobedience, darkness has been introduced into his good world, God is not without a plan. And his world is still so wise that if he explained it to Job, his head would explode. In other words, you don't know anything. And then God does not answer the question ever, why is he suffering? It doesn't get answered. If you're trying to find the answer, you won't find it. What God does is he takes Job on a cosmic tour. He says, did you hang these stars? Do you see those constellations, how they're shaped? Did you put them there? No, you didn't. What about wild donkeys and ostriches? Do you have any clue how stupid an ostrich is? No, you don't. You have no idea, Job. So what's what's God doing? He's saying you lack the perspective to make such a judgment call. 
you're in no position to make a claim that you're claiming. And then Job's first response, chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. All of his like demand for answers, he says, I surrender. You're right. I don't know anything. I lay my hand over my mouth. And then God, probably the most confusing chapters is what follows, where he talks about behemoth and leviathan. And he says, these are wild creatures, but they still have a place in my world. And then he gets to the end in chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's repeating God's question. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here, and I will speak. And so he quotes God again. Here, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So he quotes God's statement in question, and then he answers, I had heard of you, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He doesn't get the answer, but he surrenders. He says, I, 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 don't, I don't need the answer. I've heard of you now that I've seen you. I have no reason to question. I trust that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Even in the midst of unjust suffering, even that unjust suffering cannot thwart your purpose. And so I simply surrender my life to the one who has purpose. And I trust you. I I might not get my answer, but I trust you. And then look at what God says. Verse seven. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job did. And look at this. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. Why repeat where they're from? Because it's all the nations surrounding Job. Bum, 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 bum. It's the melody. 
Job is still suffering. As far as we can tell, he still has boils. He's still suffering. Even in his dialogue with the Lord, he's still in the midst of suffering. Nothing has been restored. But the nations are trusting the suffering servant who has completely trusted the Lord and is now interceding on behalf of the rebellious or folly nations. Bum, 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 bum. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The suffering servant who intercedes on behalf of the guilty. And then verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he, when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. The, this book, the book of Job, is not designed to answer all of our questions and give us little intellectual shorthand statements of the problem of evil and suffering and why bad things happen to good people. Why do good things happen to anybody? That's actually the question that the hostile one is asking. It's like, oh, well, why do good things happen at all? So here's the deal. We live outside of Eden. We're not supposed to be okay with the brokenness of the world. I'm, I'm reading a book on trauma and it's gut-wrenching. Written by a medical doctor, so they're okay just being blunt about all the things they're dealing with and the kinds of child abuse and the, the, the kind of demonic and horrific things that get done to children. It's horrid. It's gut-wrenching. It grieves the heart. As long as we're burying children, things are not right in this world. When there is systematic organ harvesting from a whole nation, things are not right in this world. We're not supposed to be okay with it and take little intellectual answers and put it in our pocket so we can feel good about ourselves or the world. Explaining it away. We're supposed to be hurt by what we see in the world. And when there's suffering and unjust suffering, we're supposed to think, this isn't right. Because we are outside of Eden. But yet, God has had a suffering servant. And see, at the end of this book, at the end of the book of Job, he dies. And so we're like, wait a second, I thought this was the guy. But apparently he wasn't. You keep reading. You keep looking. And then you get to Jesus. And Jesus comes into the midst of human suffering and brokenness as God's chosen and beloved son. His favored one. The one to whom he bestows his favor. And when Jesus shows up, he brings healing and life and forgiveness. And he does get angry. But he never gets angry at his father. 
He's always angry at the hostile one and the ones that have aligned themselves with the hostile one. That's who he gets angry at. Luke, I think it's 8 or 18. There's an 8 in there somewhere. It might be 8.18. I don't know. It's Luke, somewhere in Luke. And in my Bible, it's on the left-hand column, about two-thirds of the way down. Left page. It's a woman bent over from, oh, 18 years. That's where the eight is. Uh, I, just, I know where it's at. I would find it if, yeah. <clears throat> Run out of time. Just close it, Jacob. Um, he gets angry. And he's healing her on the Sabbath. And the self-righteous Pharisees, they're six days, you can get healed. Not the Sabbath. And, and Jesus says, is it not right that this woman, bound by Satan, bound by the hostile one, get healed on the Sabbath day? Yeah. He gets angry, but he never gets angry at God. It comes out of his baptism and he goes into the wilderness, led by the Spirit there to suffer. And when we see him suffer, we're like, oh, thank you, Jesus, that's on my behalf. But then we see Job suffer and go, hang on, God, why is this set up this way? And we're followers of Jesus. And he took upon himself the suffering of the world. Not so that we could avoid suffering, but so that when faced with suffering, we would know how to get through it and God work his redemptive purposes. I don't know why God prefers redemption over prevention because if he chose prevention, then you know what? There wouldn't be anything after Genesis 2. You and I wouldn't even be here. And so as much as I would like to maybe think that I could be in a position to tell God how he should have constructed his world, I'm probably getting in danger of Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad. And so I don't want to be in any position to try to convince God how he should have done things. But what did he do? His answer was not a philosophy, it was Jesus. And when faced with suffering, Jesus entrusted himself all the way into death and emerged from death in resurrection and new creation. And with it, forgiveness of sins for the nations. And that's who you and I follow. So like Job, we're faced with suffering. Lord, I trust you. In the end, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I trust you. I place my trust in you. I might not get the answer that I want. I might not get explained why I buried this family member and it was before their time. I might not get the answer why this sickness is prolonged and I'm not receiving my healing, but I trust you. Let me just conclude with this. James, the brother of Jesus. James often says things we don't want him to say. He says, James 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's going to be an end. That's what we looked at last week. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We see Job, we see Jesus, and we see that no purpose of the Lord can be thwarted. And even if we die and we think his purpose was thwarted, we don't have the perspective to make that judgment call. We can be like Job and say, I I don't have to know everything. If you showed me, I couldn't understand it anyway. Maybe we'll get some answers. Maybe. Maybe we can grow in our intelligence and our understanding. But never first. Trust is always first. And trust that we, we are surrendered to the one who fulfills his purpose. And he's compassionate and merciful. And that's when, if you're in the midst of suffering... The way to be patient is to trust the one who's compassionate and merciful to us. Don't shake your fist at God. If you're going to get mad, get mad at the hostile one. And one day, the hostile one will be destroyed. Amen. I mean, would you stand with me? Our ministry teams, come forward. If you need prayer... We studied the book of Job last year, early on, um, the first half of last year. And it, it was amazing to discover Job, Job existed before there was a Bible. And so what he knew of God was what had been passed down from Adam. And it says that he offered offerings for his children he acted like a priest for his family and ultimately for his friends. And in fact, God tells him at the end of, at the end of that book, he's, he tells Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, he says, you better, you better go get some, get some animals and get Job to offer a sacrifice for you too because Job was a priest for those three guys who were off. They had an idea about how God was, but they were just wrong. Ultimately, that's, they were wrong. You're, you're a priest for some of your family. You, are, you stand in the position to be a priest for some of your friends. To pray for them and to offer them a picture of who God is that allows them to understand in a brand new way. There's an old story about that. Some, the only Bible that some people will read is you. And I mean, I'm thinking, I'm looking at people in the audience and thinking every single one of you have that opportunity to be a priest for those around you, to be an example for how to deal with tough times in a way that gives God the glory for it and demonstrate trust in God in all things. Whether your family gets 
killed in a shipwreck going across the Atlantic. Or a car wreck on I-40 on the way to Arkansas or whatever. You have an opportunity to demonstrate what faith in God looks like, what trust looks like. Amen? But the bottom line for today is God is trustworthy. Stand with me, if you will. So if you're going through a difficult time, hopefully not as bad as Job, because he lost everything, even his own health. And you want somebody to pray with you. If you want some kind of encouragement about how to be, how to be faithful and trust in God even during difficult times, you come speak to me or one of the other people that you know here. And um, man, let us be a priest for you for this morning. I'm going to still be at the door on the way out, um, but let's pray right now. All right, Father God, thank you for being trustworthy that no matter what we go through, that you are, you're with us, that you've been through what we've gone through, that Jesus has been tempted in every way as we are, but he is our high priest. He's the intermediary between, between myself and a holy God, the creator of all that is. Help us to be the Jesus for the people around us, that everywhere that we go, um, we carry that love of Jesus. So bless us now in all the ways that you do to bless others for that purpose, to bless others. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless y'all. Have a great week.